The scripture reading today is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 7. Keep loving each other like family. Don't neglect to open up your homes to guests, because by doing this, some have been host to angels without knowing it. Remember prisoners as if you were in prison with them, and people who are mistreated as if you were in their place. Marriage must be honored in every respect, with no cheating on the relationship, because God will judge the sexually immoral person and the person who commits adultery. Your way of life should be free from the love of money, and you should be content with what you have. After all, he has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. This is why we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I won't be afraid. What can people do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke God's words to you. Imitate their faith as you consider the way their lives turned out. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the opportunity to come together, to sit in the round and see one another's faces and be reminded of how good you are, to be reminded that we're not alone as we journey through life and faith. And so as we um, present ourselves here, we ask that you would meet us, um, that you would clear away the things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we might be fully present to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. Speak through me because of me and also in spite of me, um, that what you have to say might be heard clearly and that we might leave this space encouraged, nurtured, challenged, and invited to join you in your work outside of these doors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About a year ago, I heard this phrase uh, that was kind of making its way around the chatter spheres. Maybe you've heard it. Quiet quitting. Anyone heard that phrase? Okay, I see some nodding heads. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've done it, maybe you're doing it. <laughs> While the concept of quiet quitting has surely been around for as long as big box retail jobs have existed, what really brought attention to it was the precipitous decline in productivity about a year after the pandemic. A person might continue to fulfill their primary responsibilities, but they're less willing to engage in activities known as citizenship behaviors. Things like going above and beyond, taking the time to connect with others, and just kind of generally being psychologically invested in their work. This drop was concurrent with the rise in resignations. Um, in fact, it's driven by many of the same underlying factors. Uh, the difference is that instead of resigning, quiet quitters simply opt out of tasks that are beyond their assigned duties. It's not on my job description. It's maybe a, a common way to, to um, capture that. Those who demonstrated the greatest amount of quiet quitting um, were 35 years old and younger. And while it might be tempting to take this as an opportunity to criticize kids these days, if we did so, I think we'd miss out on a really powerful and important insight. Most of these young people reported a significant decrease in the sense that someone cares about them, that someone wants to develop them, 
and help them learn and grow. For those who were fully remote or hybrid, this was especially true. And on top of this, less than four in 10 young remote or hybrid employees have a clear sense of what is even expected of them. In other words, it's hard to care about your job if it feels evident that no one cares about you, not even enough to help you have clarity about what you're supposed to be doing. And so while I'm not really here to give an argument for why uh, you should return to the office, <laughs> what I am thinking about, especially in light of our passage for today, is not so much about the growing apathy in the workplace, but what I like to call the thing beneath the thing, our growing apathy toward one another. We are seeing egregious versions of this in the news these days. Governors of border states ship busload after busload of folks that are fleeing death and famine to urban centers like New York and Chicago, and then point and laugh as the cities struggle to provide some semblance of support. But we don't have to go look east in order to see examples of this, even in our city's backyard at Golden Gate Park. Recent reports of bodies being discovered, one young woman from Castro Valley found in a duffel bag during the Outer Lands Festival. We now hear sweeps of encampments in the streets of the Tenderloin, and while I'm certainly not advocating for the expansion of tent cities and encampments on the sidewalks, what I want us to invite, what do I want to invite us all to consider today is the connection between quiet quitting, the systematic displacement of vulnerable people, and what it means to be a community of hospitality informed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Keep loving each other, the author of Hebrews urges. This is after 12 chapters of reminding folks not only who they are, but where they come from. The letter is called Hebrews because it is written specifically to Jewish Christians who are really struggling to hold the line on their faith convictions. They grew up in devout families whose lives and identities were not just shaped by, but saturated in the faith. They not only listened to Jewish playlists, went to Jewish schools, watched Jewish movies, and shopped in Jewish stores, they also wore bracelets that said WWJD. What would Jehovah do? Okay, I thought that was funny. Uh, everything about their lives and their communities revolved around their faith. And so when they decided to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, folks thought that they were not only abandoning their faith, but had stepped onto a very slippery slope. They were not only at risk of watering down their beliefs, but eventually losing the faith altogether and maybe even taking other folks with them in the process. And so because of this, they weren't just shunned by their families, they were aggressively harassed, intimidated, and attacked by the same folks they had grown up worshiping alongside. In fact, some of them were being reported to Roman authorities as subverting the state, which led to imprisonment. It hurt, not just in a general way, but in a very personal way. Maybe they're wondering if it's worth it. After all, now that they've started following Jesus, they're kind of starting to find themselves in community with other really different kinds of people, like people they are not entirely sure that they're comfortable with, people who bring radically different worldviews and lifestyle practices. After all, this is the Roman Empire. Folks were coming from all over the world, from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures. Okay, you know, sure, Peter had this vision, and now apparently it's okay to eat cheeseburgers, but I mean, do they really have to bring them to the church potluck? Is it just another slip down the slope? And what if we start wearing clothing where wool is mixed with linen? I mean, where do we draw the line, actually? 
And while this might sound a little bit silly to those of us Goyim, uh, it was real because of the thing beneath the thing. The anxiety wasn't about Jesus, and it wasn't exactly about the new practices, although they were definitely uncomfortable with some of them. It was about what these practices meant for them, for their children, for the future of the faith. They needed something to ground them, to help them remember that their choice to follow Jesus was actually rooted in their faith and not a corruption of it. No matter what their family members or former friends might post about them or their new faith community. So the author works really hard to essentially make the case for Christ. They draw heavily from the history, the tradition, and values of the Hebrew tradition. Don't you see, he's saying, it all fits together. Jesus is the Messiah. And perhaps equally important, the author tells them this. I know it's hard, and I know it feels a little scary. But if there's anyone who knows how to do hard and scary things, who can point to a whole ancestral lineage of faithfulness, who fought and stood firm in the faith, it's us. By the end of the day, but at the end of the day, it's not only about convincing them of the facts or providing them with a pathway for theological understanding. It's actually about figuring out how to live this out, how to get out of their heads and into their bodies, because living out this radically expansive vision of community in a hostile world that's where the rubber meets the road. And that brings us to our passage for today. Keep loving each other. This is how the final chapter of Hebrews begins, and it is, I think, a thesis statement for what follows. Loving each other looks like supporting each other in our marriage commitments, even if the broader culture look, uh, doesn't value it in the same way. It looks like visiting the imprisoned, not just to drop off supplies and offer a prayer, although those things can be important, but to really feel what they are experiencing and to be in solidarity, to stand with them, particularly for them as Christians in the Roman Empire. It might really actually one day be you. It looks like being content with what you have instead of focusing on what you don't have. A scarcity mindset is a shortcut to resentment envy, and unhappiness. And while this list of practices for loving are important, it's the one at the top that we're focusing on today, hospitality. Over the past several weeks, we've been exploring what it means and what it takes to be a place of belonging, to be a real community. If gratitude is the ground on which we live out our life together, promise-keeping is the scaffolding, and truthful living is the structure, then hospitality, the quality of our welcome, and the spaciousness with which we receive one another, that's what makes up the interior. Several years ago, I read a book uh, called Reaching Out by a man named Henry Nowen. Nowen was a writer and a priest in the Catholic tradition, and for those of you for whom this carries some cachet, the close friend of a Presbyterian minister named Fred Rogers. In his book, Nowen talks about some of his experience living in a community for se severely de developmentally disabled folks. While he was there, Nowen had a number of experiences that made him realize how much further he had to grow spiritually. It was hard. It was hard to live in community with folks um, like that. Living in this community, he continually had the edges of his patience, assumptions, and comfort expanded. And instead of walking away, he leaned in 
to discover what the Spirit was inviting him to understand and grow into as a follower of Jesus. One of these realizations was what he calls hospitality of the heart. Now, when we think about hospitality, we might think about coffee and donuts before a worship service or setting out clean linens for a visiting house guest, perhaps even preparing a special meal to make sure that they feel welcome. We might tell the person, we're so glad you're here. Please make yourself at home. And typically, we mean it. It would be off-putting, right, and strange, actually, if a guest arrived at your home and said, hello, you may only sleep in this bedroom, and you are not allowed to use the bathroom. If you need to, you can use the bucket I set in the corner. Also, you may only eat the food we set outside of your door. You might be inclined to wonder if you are not, in fact, a guest, but a prisoner. Either way, it would be difficult to feel welcomed. Well, in a way, this is so often how we deal with one another. You can show these parts of yourself, but not these. I like this aspect of your life, but please don't bring this other part. We limit what we allow each other to show up to the things that are safe, respectable, and only partially true. Inadvertently, then, what we end up doing is we coerce each other toward misrepresenting ourselves, which is another way of saying we create a culture that goes against the value of truthful living. I don't think that's what most of us intend to do, but so how do we begin to reverse this? When the author of Hebrews talks about loving each other, he uses the word philadelphia, which is less about you guys and more about us guys, siblinghood and family love. But then in the very next line, he uses a different kind of word, philozena, love for strangers. And this is the word that gets translated as hospitality. The paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness, not a fearful kind of emptiness, but a friendly emptiness. Let's call it a spaciousness, right? Where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free. Free to sing their own songs, free to speak their own languages, free to dance their own dances. Free also to leave and follow their own vocations, if that's what it calls to. Hospitality does not hold people in place and lock them in, right? It, and it's not a subtle invitation to adore the lifestyle of the host, right? But rather the gift of a chance for a guest to find their own. Hospitality of the heart is about creating the kind of spaciousness in which our hearts, in our hearts, which allow folks to move and fill whatever rooms or spaces that can help them be true to who they are in relationship to us. Make yourself at home in relationship with me, with each other. It's a free and expectant space, not expectant that they will perform themselves to our liking, but so that they can come alive with fullness in friendship and community. Now, if you've ever, uh, I'm sure no, none of you have ever had this experience, um, you grow up, you're a fully grown adult, and you return home to your childhood Thanksgiving dinner, and suddenly, you are still the little sister or brother that reacts immediately to the next thing that um, your older sibling says, and then your dad says this, and your mom responds this way, and suddenly it's like nothing changed over the last 20 years of your life, right? No, if we can create enough space for each other to grow and live into the person that we truly are, even in our families, wow, what a transformative experience that, that would be. Creating space for each other 
allows a person maybe to enter as a stranger, but leave as a friend. But let's be honest, right? Not everyone is a good guest. Uh, some folks take up more space than they should, they eat more food than is their fair share, and stay longer than is expected. I recall a friend sharing about a time when they stayed overnight at another friend's home, and as they got settled, they were actually kind of shocked when they were instructed to leave their dirty towels on the floor of the bathroom. In their family, that would be considered an insult to the host. Other times, guests are unappreciative of the efforts that a host might be making to help them feel welcomed, not so much for the sake of recognition, but so that people understood how much consideration was taken to help them feel comfortable. It's a way to show how much you care. Now, we actually had some discussion on the finance team, actually, about whether or not we should let people know how much it costs the church to offer parking. It didn't sit well with us, uh, or with our value of hospitality, to have a sign that says, parking at your car costs us $20, you know? But we did want folks to know that by offering parking, it's a gift that we are glad to offer. It's a gift that we are glad to offer. We want folks to feel at ease and welcomed when they come to church. Helping to avoid the stress of hunting down a parking spot when, frankly, let's be honest, you're already running late. This is just about one way to do that, right? And so we just decided to post a sign that says, parking is compliments of City Church San Francisco. We are glad to give it as a gift, but it isn't free, right? Hospitality is not always easy, but it is always worth it, especially in Christian community. After all, church is one of the few spaces these days that are uncurated when it, gets, when it comes to who gets to walk through the doors, right? There's no card to swipe or passcode to enter. And so naturally, it encroaches on our comfort and threatens our sense of control over who gets to be in and who is out, right? And frankly, with so many folks coming and going, hospitality in the city can wear a person out, especially if the guests might be considered perhaps unworthy in some ways. This, I think, is what I find so powerful about the way our partners at City Hope talk about their work of creating space for their neighbors in the Tenderloin. Radical hospitality and dignified transformation. They could tell stories for days about how their commitment to hospitality has helped to create, just create space for the life-giving transformation, for life-giving transformation, not only for the folks that they serve, but for everyone involved. And that's the thing about God's economy. When we work to create spaciousness for someone else to be their whole self, we somehow discover that there is more space for our whole selves. Maybe it's okay for me to show up fully. And we might find that the bounds of our inclusion are not just expanded, but softened. And if that sounds like we are slipping down a dangerous slope, I'd invite you to wonder where that slope might actually be leading you. Because while there are a number of instructions, guidance, and warnings to be found in the letters to the early church, there is one chorus that rings true and clear throughout. What matters most is unity. Not the kind of unity that says you can only fill this space in this way or that space in that way. No, it's not a unity. That's not unity. That's actually coercion. <laughs> what I'm talking about is the kind of unity that places Jesus at the center, makes him our touchstone, our plumb line, and our north star for every and any challenge that may come our way. 
We may find ourselves closer to or further away from that center for any number of reasons at any season of our life, right? Still, though, the call to unity remains. This kind of unity requires courage. It requires a courage that is greater than my comfort, stronger than my fears, and deeper than my understanding. No, this kind of courage doesn't come to us by our own capacity or competence. It only comes to us by the freely gifted grace of the one who welcomed us first. It was Jesus who welcomed us first, and most fully with our whole selves into his love. No qualifications, who welcomed us into his heart, into his home, and into a shared future together. And it is Jesus who grants us the courage to do the same for others. Will you be courageous? And so when we think about quiet quitters and busloads of refugees, when we think about encampments swept away and loving the stranger who is yet to be a friend, let yourself be reminded that it was a stranger named Jesus who sought you out, picked you up, and set you down in the house of God, which will always, always have enough room for all of who you are yet to be. At God's welcome table, Jesus is the guest and the host and the whole meal. He sits with us, he welcomes us, and he nourishes us, not just for our own benefit, but so that we might have the courage to make our tables more welcome for one another, and for the next stranger yet to be friend who walks through our uncurated doors. Let us pray. God, we admit, we confess to you that we sometimes do not feel very welcoming at all for any number of reasons. And so we ask that you would expand the spaciousness of our hearts, not just for the sake of others, but for ourselves that we might have and believe in the abundance and generosity of your grace, enough to step out even when maybe from time to time we feel scarce. We thank you, God, that you invite us every single day to practice this, to try this, to live with courageous welcome so that your love might be made known to those we have yet to be friends with, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.